please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Hello and good morning. If you're watching live, you'll find that it's Wednesday, the 10th of February, 2021. As usual, we have the simultaneous translation below and a Q&A quest, uh, question answer button as well below. So uh, if you do have any questions at any point, click there and you can send them across to us in your native language, of course, no problem at all. Or you can always send uh, emails to nordiafunds at nordia.com. Right. To kick things off, uh, we have our senior macro strategist, uh, that's Sebastian Garley, with us this morning. Uh, good morning, Sebastian. Good morning. Hi. So, never a dull moment. Um, most recently, the ECB has been discussing the negative interest rates that we've been seeing for a number of years now uh, in the EU. And there's a kind of a bit of a development there. So I wondered if perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure, there's been uh, some discussions essentially that they could uh, even go more negative in, in terms of interest rates and why to discourage the appreciation of uh, the euro dollar. And some of them push back against this and says it's a French view. But essentially what they're trying to tell us is if euro dollar increases from current levels significantly, and then they might have to intervene and go for more negative interest rates. So it caps the top side in euro dollar and it promises eventually an even lower level of interest rates in the eurozone potentially, for example. So you can imagine, for example, if the Fed would suddenly go for more QE, then euro dollar would move to 125, 130, and then uh, the ECB would react by having more negative interest rates, driving the entire boom curve, uh, BTPs, Italy, and so forth, even more into negative interest rates. Now, the more, more positive, positive view on this is not what's happening on the euro side, but what's happening on the US side. Um, we expect that eventually, as the economy opens up with vaccines, uh, they get a surge of demand. As we get that surge of demand, we'll get some expectations that the Fed is actually going to uh, tighten a little bit earlier, but especially going to taper. And the consequence of that should be to get, create some dollar demand. So we're looking over H2, probably a level of euro dollar between 110 and 115, probably around 115 more likely, but uh, most likely between this range. So good news if you've got a mortgage or thinking of taking a mortgage, not so good if you're a saver. No, uh, no, but that's the usual story. You penalize somebody to, to save everyone. Yeah. So in the past, we've also discussed uh, the Norwegian Krona, and uh, I know you've got an update for us on that one as well. So perhaps uh, you'd like to talk us through the next slide. Yeah, we, we are a Nordic outfit, a European outfit and a global outfit, but, but we have a DNA in the, in the Nordics. And if we focus on that graph, what you can see is that the Naki, Norwegian Krona, trades as a function of oil prices. So the question is, does that make sense? And the answer is largely no, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> the market 
It's only the market that, that matters and the market trades it as such. And because it trades it as such and the oil prices should continue to increase over the next few months on the back of better demand and limited supply, then what we should see is the Norwegian krona appreciate. And so it's a decent bet. Of course, in, in currencies, these are topical bets that you want to take. If it's uh, if it's uh, the Nordics, that there are global hedges that you probably want to have, such as being long the dollar, long the yen, uh, in terms of risk aversion, for example. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? We Whenever we see a strengthening of the knock, we tend to see a lot of institutional money, particularly Apparently, U.S. investors like to play the the knock play. So, uh, be interesting to see what happens this year as uh, as perhaps that that strengthens. Yeah, it should be a fascinating play. I think, of course, the, the potential for appreciation is relatively limited. You're not looking for huge gains, but you're looking for consequent gains, and this is what you get in currencies in advanced economies. Yeah, great. So to summarize, let's um, put the summary slide up, and uh, you know, two things. First of all upside on euro dollar um, and again of course we did this depends as well to some extent on whether the fed uh, eases uh, because if they do then of course that's that's not going to be the case but um the implication is that perhaps you know we're at levels where you would sell euro dollar uh, for the second half of this year yeah, and we've been proponents of long euro dollar for quite a while. Uh, I've been a, a little bit slow to turn around the positions, uh, but the, the main reason we were positive on euro dollar is because there's a lot of money that was flowing into emerging markets. And as it flows into emerging markets, some of these dollars that are intervening are recycled into euros. And so it creates general dollar weakness and some euro strength. And the consequence has been a rise of euro dollar. Uh, without these, uh, these inflows, uh, then the odds are that euro dollar has a certain tendency to fade also yeah and then the other thing of course you know with the vaccines and with hopefully uh, good news we're just around the corner as the economy starts to pick up again uh, we anticipate oil prices to to head north and with that also the norwegian krona yeah and oil prices are already on the brent side it's a 60 dollars so it's gone a long way but it probably can go another 20 dollars yeah. great all right, Sebastian, thank you again uh, for your time. Uh, we'll speak again soon, no doubt. And now we're going to move into the main section. And the main section today, we uh, are joined by Carsten Bier. Now, many of you will know Carsten from our multi-assets team based up in Copenhagen. And uh, Carsten is a fixed income portfolio manager in that team. So hello, Carsten. Are you there? I'm here, Paul. I'm here. Hey, how are you? Uh, I'm good. Uh... We are enjoying the sunny, uh, sunny Copenhagen and the sunny markets these days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> can't be bad, can it? Uh, can't be bad. No. <laughs> That's good. So, um, as I just mentioned, you work within the multi-assets team, and um, a sort of a cornerstone of of your investment models um, is your uh, proprietary assumption paper that you um, that you've created. And there's a big team behind you uh, that, that are working on that constantly and I know it gets updated on, on a regular basis. Now that research is showing us that uh, past returns are certainly not indicative of future uh, returns and uh, I think it would be good if we could just revisit that and look at the fixed income space, what's happened historically and what your expectations are uh, moving forward over the next decade. Say. Yes, absolutely, Paul. And you are perfectly right that uh, fixed income investors are uh, facing a, a challenging future in, uh, in several ways. Um, 
First and foremost, uh, expected returns on essentially all bonds have collapsed uh, following more than a decade of uh, very aggressive uh, monetary stimulus uh, in the form of both rate cuts and, and quantitative easing. But, but second, uh, with yields uh, as low as they are right now, um, the, the ability of bonds to play the defensive role in a, in a balanced portfolio today seems uh, quite exhausted. Uh, but let's start with, a, with the first point about returns. Uh, as, as you mentioned, the, the bar chart here to the left shows the returns on, on different asset classes uh, based on, uh, on the research from our strategic assumptions team, as, as you mentioned. And mm -hmm. while returns over the past 10 years have been uh, quite fantastic uh, on all asset classes, uh, expected returns for the next 10 years look uh, clearly more depressed. Um, this is probably not a, a big surprise to anyone, given that we have around uh, $18 trillion of debt uh, with negative yields globally these days, uh, and that yeah. really corresponds to, to more than a quarter of the world's uh, total, total investment grade debt. So, so things are looking uh, difficult. Um, and, and with so much uh, high quality debt uh, returning a, a negative, or if you are fortunate, a small positive return over the next 10 years, uh, we will uh, see many investors being tempted. Uh, you can also say perhaps being forced to move further out in the risk space to, to high yield, to emerging market debt, uh, to obtain a, a positive return after costs. Uh, and this difficult situation is not something that that I would expect to disappear anytime soon, uh, because in, in most ways, uh, the current return in, uh, uh, or the headwind you see in, in returns in fixed income uh, these days is actually a bigger issue than it was uh, after the, the global financial crisis back in, in 2008. Uh, back then, we also saw bond yields falling sharply uh, due to an aggressive central bank response to the financial crisis, uh, where both the ECB and in particular the Fed cut rates uh, aggressively uh, to rescue financial markets and, and the global economy. Um, that is illustrated by the right-hand chart here, yep. where you see uh, short-term interest rates, uh, for instance, the one year, one year forward, uh, with marked with a black color, uh, it fell from around 5% to 1%. Uh, today, short-term rates are even lower than back then, but a much more important difference uh, is that back in, in 08, uh, markets expected the, the low interest rate uh, situation to be temporary in the sense that uh, you saw uh, one-year rates five years forward or 10 years forward, uh, relatively stable and not showing a, a very significant fall. Today, markets have completely thrown in the towel on expecting high interest rates anytime soon. Uh, and uh, this uh, low interest rate environment seems to have taken a much more uh, permanent character. Uh, the expected yield, uh, one-year yield in 10 years' time is close to zero. So by all means, uh, zero or, or below zero interest rates have de definitely become the, the new normal according to, uh, to the current market view. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I think if you'd have told someone this like 10 years ago, they'd have thought that you were absolutely nuts. But absolutely. here we are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we are. And, uh, and during that time as well, of course, we've seen credit spreads, you know, tightening and tightening has been massive tightening going on. And that as a fixed income investor, I, I can imagine makes it very, very difficult to squeeze any more juice out of the asset class. So, you know, where do you, where do you see spreads going, uh, you know, in the, the next few years? 
Yeah, I would love to tell you that you could find some shelter in uh, from the low yield environment uh, in the credit space, uh, but that is uh, unfortunately not the case. Uh, credit no. spreads are also very low. Uh, they are actually close to the uh, post uh, financial crisis lows uh, as, as we are speaking. Uh, and that goes for both uh, European and corporate debt, uh, as well as uh, a sovereign debt from emerging markets, as you can see from, from the left hand chart. Um, again, it's, uh, of course, all due to uh, the monetary policy actions uh, by the major central banks uh, yeah. as persistent zero or, or negative interest rates and, and these unprecedented public purchases of, of government debt, uh, mortgage debt, corporate bonds, etc., have pushed uh, yields lower across the entire fixed income spectrum. Uh, that said, I think it's, uh, it's remarkable, actually, uh, just how much credit spreads have actually tightened over the past year. And the mm. spreads are already uh, very close to be at their uh, pre-COVID uh, levels uh, once again. Mm. I fully uh, acknowledge that the world is in a better position now than it was, say, uh, two, three quarters ago. We have the vaccine progress. We have a strong political intervention. Uh, but COVID-19 and the economic challenges of, 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 of the pandemic are, are still very present, I would say. And that, that means, of course, that the global economy is still not in a perfect shape. Uh, and, and I really doubt that the ongoing recovery that we do see would be uh, fully self-sustainable without continued strong uh, government support. So in that context, one might have expected a, a slower and less complete return of credit spreads to the pre-COVID levels. Uh, but uh, but that, has not, that is not the case. Um, and and uh, yeah, so so we are uh, we we have quite low credit spreads, uh, and uh, and with that, uh, some fixed income investors, uh, ourselves included, actually have have also turned their uh, to inflation proxies for for generating return uh, because uh, the ongoing inflation theme is likely to to lead to higher inflation, and in that sense, inflation might be a good alternative to to credit. Uh, but uh, but I think we have also seen the best of the inflation trade already. Break-even in, in the US uh, is close to 2.5%, not far from the historical average. Uh, and and uh, in Europe, I would say, I still consider the risk of, of continued low inflation to, to exceed the risk of higher inflation, considering the larger European output gap we have. From a portfolio perspective, inflation is a good uh, fixed income proxy for equity risk. Uh, and we have clearly benefited from our inflation exposures uh, during the past year and also in the beginning of this year uh, as we have seen break even uh, climbing higher but uh, i'm also on inflation afraid that we have uh, the best of the returns behind us rather than ahead of us okay this is all sounding a little bit depressing so we got a, sorry. an asset sorry class spreads a square sorry mate <laughs> sorry to, to to ruin your day <laughs> yeah, yeah it's wednesday it's okay i'll go yeah. <laughs> um so, so I'm, I'm guessing, you know, you touched on it just now, you have to be flexible, you know, when, when there's an opportunity in the marketplace, like the inflation uh, play that you've, you've been taking advantage of, you have to be able to, to do that quite quickly, because like you say, it, it disappears again. Um, that flexibility, you know, what does that entail, you know, from your perspective, Carson, what's, go what's going on there? 
Yeah, it, uh, it, 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 it entails a lot of different things. Uh, some clients uh, will be familiar with one of uh, the most uh, fundamental principles of our investment process at the multi-asset team, namely the risk balancing principle. Uh, risk yeah. balancing is an investment philosophy uh, where you mix uh, portfolio elements that perform during recoveries uh, with portfolio elements that works uh, better during uh, downturns. Mm -hmm. Within fixed income, um, the defensive part of the portfolio would normally uh, be uh, high quality government bonds such as German bonds, uh, while the aggressive part of the portfolio would consist of various types of spread related products, uh, high yield, etc. Uh, but in today's uh, low yield environment, we have a problem because with Boons training uh, close to minus 50 basis points, it is uh, first of all costly to have them in the portfolio. And secondly, uh, you might question just how much safety they can really provide if bond yields cannot fall uh, much further at, at the next uh, market downturn. In this situation, a higher degree of flexibility in the portfolio construction is definitely needed uh, compared to, to the good old days uh, with, with higher bond yields. And, and with flexibility, I mean a broader investment universe uh, where we as portfolio managers are able to, to navigate uh, in a more unconstrained fashion around the investment space um, uh, both with respect to geographical exposures uh, as well as uh, the desired level of, uh, of portfolio risk. In our mm. case, uh, we use this uh, flexibility to, to screen for attractive value and risk propositions across all major government bond markets, for instance. And we also take uh, currency risk as a, as a way, you can say, a new modern way to achieve uh, the risk mitigation that, that Boons, uh, for instance, can no longer provide. Um, you would see examples of that uh, in, in, in the lower charts here. Uh, for instance, uh, our positions in, in higher yielding Australian government debt uh, and, and open uh, defensive currency positions, such as a, a long yen short uh, Aussie position, which tends to be strongly uh, negatively correlated with uh, the riskier part of fixed income asset uh, space uh, like high yield. Um, so all in all, uh, with the low yield environment uh, setting the background for all uh, investment decisions these days, uh, we as uh, uh, portfolio managers need a, a higher degree of flexibility to, to generate uh, decent returns without uh, increasing the risk uh, more markedly. Yeah. And I mean, that currency um, play, that's not something new, is it? I, mean, I remember you and I traveling around London visiting clients was it three, four years ago talking about mm. this? At that time, they were like, whoa, this is new. We don't see this. Um, but this is something that you've been doing for a while, isn't it? It's something that we have been looking into for more than a decade now. So it's, uh, yeah. it's not new, but it's, uh, it, I think for, for some fixed income investors, uh, including open currency risk would normally be taken as an increase in the risk level, whereas it actually, yeah. in the way that we use it, actually is used to decrease the decrease risk. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's it from a strategic perspective. What about, you know, more tactical plays? Are there things that you can do short term that, that can help, you know, generate more returns? Yeah, we spoke earlier about uh, bond yields and uh, expected returns on bonds uh, being low from a, a longer term uh, strategic point of view. Uh, and that is actually also our view on a more uh, short term tactical basis. Uh, 
our approach to tactically assess the attractiveness of government bonds compared to, for example, holding cash is based on our systematic uh, tactical duration models. Mm-hmm. Um, these models are designed to determine whether uh, bond valuation is uh, sufficiently attractive to account for, for the possible bond unfriendly trends you will see in inflation, uh, growth, risk appetite, and so forth, as you have seen uh, recently here in, in, in the beginning of, of 2021. In the models shown to the left here, uh, we with these uh, with this framework we calculate uh, valuation on on bonds, which is uh, largely a function of the yield curve steepness, uh, as curve steepness is is exactly the reward that you will receive from adding duration to a portfolio by extending the maturity of your bond holdings. So if the yield curve is steep, then there is an attractive duration premium. And that would be reflected by large yellow bars in the chart. Uh, and vice versa, of course, if the curve is flat, the bars are low because valuation is, is less attractive. Right. But valuation is, of course, not all that matters. Uh, if you have a strong momentum in inflation, uh, strong momentum in, in the growth process, uh, this will normally create some headwinds for, uh, for bonds. Uh, so there is at all times, there will be a trade-off between valuation on the one hand and fundamental momentum on, on the other hand. And to assess this trade-off, uh, more systematically, we have constructed these uh, signal models that include uh, both valuation and fundamental momentum. The output mm-hmm. from the models uh, is a probability that bonds will outperform cash, uh, and this is shown by the red line in the in the, in, in the in the left-hand axis. Um, so, as you can see, we are currently having quite flat yield curves. The yellow bars are low. Uh, yep. The valuation contribution to, to the signal is, is, is therefore small, uh, while the signal contributions from, from the growth and risk momentum illustrated by the blue bars uh, pull the overall probability, probability down. And this is perhaps not a big surprise if you look at the right-hand chart on this page that shows a very strong upward uh, macro trend, which remains to be reflected in, in, in the bond market and the bond yields in general. Mm-hmm. So the net result from the tactical model uh, or the models is, is a probability close to or, or actually slightly below 50, uh, meaning that the odds of bond performance vis-a-vis cash is uh, at 50-50 at the best. Uh, so based on input from both our strategic and tactical investment framework, uh, we currently run the multi-asset portfolio with, uh, with quite low uh, duration risk uh, currently. Can I just ask you a question? Because why yeah. is there that, that lag then? Because that ISM, you know, that's pretty sharp. How comes there's a lag? Uh, thanks to the Federal Reserve uh, in particular and, and other major central banks uh, more generally, uh, as Fed has firmly committed along with the major central banks to keep interest rates uh, low at zero or below for the foreseeable future, uh, then bond markets feel that they can uh, safely keep uh, yields low. Uh, because if, if the Fed is not uh, going to raise interest rates or any other central bank, and as long as they are purchasing essentially all the bonds that are being issued, uh, then uh, bond yields have uh, some difficulties in going significantly higher. We have seen them go higher uh, recently, uh, and that has been okay since we are, are a little bit cautious towards interest rate risk, uh, but, but there is a, a huge gap uh, for, for sure. Yeah. So, so yeah. Y- y- uh, you had another slide, didn't you? Yeah, I have also have one on, on, on credit, uh, because along the same lines, uh, we assess uh, the short-term outlook for, for credit markets using a, a similar tactical approach. Um, yeah. on, on credit, our tactical model also 
assesses uh, a trade-off between attractive valuation and in, in, in credit world, it's about spread levels, of course, uh, versus the risk of seeing a default or a credit downgrade, um, which is assumed to be a function of the macro momentum and, and the risk momentum. So on the credit side, we get a a slightly more clear uh, cautious signal as the probability of corporate bonds outperforming government bonds is uh, is more significantly below 50-50 as you can see from from the left hand chart. Uh, mm -hmm. Risk momentum is generally positive for credit, uh, but the current low spreads makes a credit valuation again illustrated by the yellow bars uh, quite unattractive because current spreads do not offer that much insulation from from possible defaults again this may not be a big surprise for uh, for our viewers uh, if one look at the right hand chart where you see in us investment grade spreads close to their uh, historical lows uh, the red dot there is the latest observation so it is by all means very low yeah. So with rather poor odds uh, of corporate bonds outperforming government bonds, we currently also have a somewhat cautious tactical stance on corporate credit in the, in the multi-asset portfolios. Okay. Now, here at Nordea, we have, we have a range of different products that, you, that you're involved in. Um, that goes from the conservative fixed income strategy up to the flexible fixed income strategy but we've just launched a new version a, a flexible fixed income strategy plus i just wonder you know why have we decided to launch this this new strategy and who is it aimed at you know who can benefit from this yes uh, the family uh, is growing we now have these yeah. <laughs> uh, four different uh, low risk solutions available to to our clients uh, every solution of course, has its own characteristics uh, and they do differ in terms of expected return and risk and also in terms of uh, investment universe and, and the use of leverage. Uh, the oldest of these strategies is the Flexible Fixed Income Fund, uh, which was launched back in, in 2013 with the aim of delivering a return target of cash plus uh, 200 basis points over a business cycle. Mm -hmm. um, the return target in the Flexible Fixed Income Fund and also the risk level makes it an attractive alternative to, to government bonds, I would say, or, or highly graded credit products. Um, and uh, apart from being a, a fixed income portfolio only, it uses these uh, defensive currencies for, for risk mitigation, as, as we just uh, talked about. Um, and then you mentioned an, an even more cautious alternative to the flexible fixed income fund, namely the, uh, the conservative fixed income fund, uh, which was, uh, has approximately half of the targeted return and uh, the risk of the, of the flexible fixed income fund. Okay. Um, and with the lower return and risk profile that you will have here, uh, this fund is more to be seen as an alternative to, to holding cash, uh, which nowadays will give you a guaranteed loss due to the negative interest rates. Mm. For clients with a, a higher risk appetite, we have for some years been offering the, the balanced income fund, uh, which targets a return of cash plus 300 basis points over an investment cycle. Uh, with this, uh, I would say, quite attractive return proposition, uh, this fund can be seen as a good alternative to credit. This fund can hold a little bit of equity beta, up to 25%, uh, but this equity beta is, of course, strategically and tactically hedged uh, to keep a cautious risk profile and maintain the focus on, on capital preservation. And then finally, as you say, we here in January launched uh, the Flexible Fixed Income Plus strategy, which is essentially a two times leveraged version of the flexible fixed income strategy. 
Right. So what we do here is that we practically double all the positions in the flexible fixed income, uh, which is doable because we already use a lot of derivatives in the in the portfolio composition of the flexible fixed income fund. Uh, mm -hmm. This new fund is designed to offer the double risk and return uh, compared to the flexible fund, uh, and it has been launched to, as you can say, provide more risk-hungry clients with a juicier solution uh, that still has focus on on limiting drawdowns uh, and and capital preservation, unlike uh, many other uh, credit products uh, that you can find out there with similar return targets, but with uh, with clearly more risk uh, in in terms of uh, doing uh, market jitters. Yeah, I'm sure that we'll find uh, a market for that. It sounds like it's just what everyone's looking for. So uh, let's see uh, how we got on with that one. But it sounds like a great so solution yeah, uh, for so. people in this space. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, uh, time is running short. So uh, I'm going to call up the uh, key takeaways. And we have a slide uh, on that. So as we were mentioning right at the beginning, uh, the fixed income space is becoming increasingly tricky to uh, find juice and to find returns uh, for a number of different reasons. In terms of strategically and tactically, uh, we are cautiously positioned towards the traditional uh, government and corporate bonds. And uh, rather than then just increasing the, the credit exposure, what we're doing is we are leveraging on the existing alpha sources that we have and also you know, making sure that we're very, very flexible so that when opportunities present themselves that we can take advantage of that in order to, to keep returns uh, higher. And then finally, um, we have the addition of the new flexible fixed income plus strategy, um, which is at the high end. And then the opposite of that, if you like, is the conservative fixed income strategy. In between, we have the flexible and the balance. So really, you know, a palette of, of uh, products and solutions in this space that suit perhaps, you know, different needs, different risk return profiles uh, for your clients. Well, that's it from me. Is there anything, Carsten, you'd like to add before we sign off? Uh, I think you summed it up very well, Paul. Uh, perhaps uh, I might uh, just add that uh, all the solutions we have discussed here are generally uh, what I would say very liquid solutions. Uh, so unlike many other offerings uh, you might find on there uh, to enhance returns, we are not loading on any illiquidity premium. Um, and that means that we have a, a high degree in the in the portfolio, uh, getting that through using most uh, liquid financial instruments for the portfolio construction. Uh, and that became very clear last winter where we, unlike some uh, other funds uh, in, in, in this space, uh, were able to, to navigate more smoothly and actually able to implement some considerable portfolio reallocations during the, the term model. Uh, I think for some clients, at least, this is also an attractive feature. Uh, and it's always something that people uh, require or, or wish for when you have uh, financial market stress, uh, when, whenever the next time of that will happen. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for joining us uh, today, Carson. And uh, good luck with the new strategy. I'm sure it will be a big success for us going ahead. And yeah, look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. So next Wednesday, we decided that we would move to the equity side and specifically look at our um, ESG stars equity range. Uh, so what we thought we'd do is take a broader look at that offering 
and discuss perhaps you know similarities be between the different strategies and also the differences and for that i will be joined by sebastian olmquist who is a product specialist uh, within the fundamental equity team so please do join us for that that will be the 27th of uh, february in the meantime don't forget to visit our stay alert website you'll find that at nordia.lu and also, if you haven't already, please do take a look at our new website, nordiaassetmanagement.com. That's it. See you next Wednesday.